Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Storied States. Our music throughout is by the New York Art Quartet, off of the album Old Stuff, comprised of live recordings from Copenhagen in 1965, but first released in 2010 on Cuneiform Records, showing that the music of the band was still vital. Time had not effaced its impact. This is Potizda, which is Norwegian and means, conveniently, on Tuesday. Today's show is something of a counter-companion to last week's program, Storied Into Being, with anthology editor and literature professor Martin Puchner. That show followed the stories which accompanied writing technology on its roughly 5,000-year journey from the accountants of ancient Mesopotamia to the entrepreneurship of Benjamin Franklin. And what should be no surprise, we saw how literature runs a parallel course with state power and class domination. Even old Franklin saw fit to become postmaster general of the United States to facilitate his business interests. In storied states, we come to find out just why that is, by means of examining the shift in how humans lived, moving from hunter-gatherers to sedentary farmers. And contrary to official narrative, it wasn't because humans couldn't wait to give up the so-called arduous life of necessary mobility and settle down. In fact, the opposite appears to be true. Humans had to be compelled into lives of drudgery, normally lived in the shackled service of a non-producing elite, priests, kings, scribes, the very classes of people who end up writing and propagating our canonical literary and sacred texts. At the center of it all, facilitating indenture and servitude is grain. Rice, wheat, and corn in particular all turn out to be wonderful tools of the taxman and the military campaign. Returning to Interchange to continue the work of unsettling us is James Scott. He's Sterling Professor of Political Science and Professor of Anthropology and founding director of the program in Agrarian Studies at Yale University. The author of many books, including the classic Seeing Like a State, his most recent is Against the Grain, a deep history of the earliest states. It might also be called In Praise of Collapse or Better Living Through Barbarity. We begin with the upending of the longtime archaeological orthodoxy that the domestication of plants and animals led directly to sedentism and fixed field agriculture. Instead, humans had domesticated plants and animals for about 4,000 years before the agricultural villages appeared that made city-states like Uruk even a possibility. So just why did humanity remain uncivilized for a period of time roughly equivalent to all of our written history after learning to plant and harvest? We'll turn now to Jim Scott for the answer. Jim, your, your purpose, and you, you set it up for yourself, right? You say, I thought I knew certain things about the uh, sort of archaeological history of the world, and I discovered when I went back to review what I had been doing and update it with the current literature that, I, uh, that the things I knew were no longer correct or weren't even close to being right. That's correct. I, um, I've been teaching a seminar with other people for the last 25 years, actually, on the comparative study of agrarian societies, and I had been giving the introductory lecture on the domestication of fire and plants and animals and the earliest states. And I had revised that lecture from time to time, but I realized it was out of date. And when I got asked to give some a couple of formal lectures, the Tanner lectures, I thought, oh, well, um, I just finished a book and I didn't want to sort of undertake a huge project, I thought at least I could update those two lectures, which I knew to be not entirely up to date. Mm -hmm. uh, and what astounded me was that to go back and read the archaeology and history, I realized that my lectures were wrong in some fundamental ways. And yes, so the it resulted in a detour for me of a three-year detour, at the end of which I then produced what I think we now understand about those earliest states and those early permanent settlements. Yeah, one of the things that the book does really well is is, is lay out um, 
the way that geography is important, the way that uh, climate is important, but also the way that this is a somewhat small story that becomes very large. And part of the, it's again part of the interesting, uh, I guess, parallel between uh, this book and I guess the perspective of Puckner's book was that when you look at the narrative and even visit the places, you have to kind of remember this is not, you know, down the street. This is not New York. This is not Chicago. This is this is Uruk. You know, this is uh, at best, you know, 25,000, 50,000 people and usually far fewer people involved in, in how things begin. And then and there also is the – I guess you start – primarily with the archaeological record of what is a, a long um, kind of percolation of the technologies of, of growing grain. Correct. So I think you've actually captured uh, the spirit of what I want to say quite well in the sense that uh, these are, if you like, the very earliest and quite small uh, experiments in sedentary living on a substantial scale, not substantial by contemporary terms, but substantial for their terms. These were tiny little uh, dots on the map, and yet these what I call grain modules of population uh, and concentrated power ended up being the most powerful colonizing forces that helped to create states uh, and then came to dominate what had previously been a world dominated by hunters and gatherers uh, and foragers. So set us up with what was wrong, uh, Jim. What 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 did you have wrong? What did the archaeologists have wrong? I think there was one person in particular you point out, not necessarily that she was entirely wrong, but rather that uh, it was a prevailing attitude that uh, one went to grain farming when your back was against the wall. That was uh, Bostrup, is that right? Yes, that's right. Esther Bostrup, mm-hmm. uh, a, a great, actually, Danish uh a woman economist who uh, whose work I revere. However, in that particular case, she it was the what I call the backs to the wall theory, and she was interested in European cultivation at a much later date. And she thought that the resort to the plow and plow agriculture only took place when population had increased to a point where people absolutely had to get more out of a small plot of land than they had to previously, and so. They, in a sense, were forced to the plow, partly because there was no longer a large frontier. They could no longer practice slash-and-burn agriculture in the forest and so on. Um, so what I, the most important thing I think I had wrong that got me onto this particular track is that I had not realized that the firm evidence for domesticated plants and for a certain casual planting of grains, evidence for that exists 4,000 years before anything like villages living largely by agriculture appear. And so 4,000 years is a long time. If we measure backward from contemporary times, we're back to 2000 BC. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the question then became why, I mean, under the standard narrative, uh, it was assumed that once we had mastered the domestication of grains and could create fixed fields, that we would do it immediately and on a large scale, and that made uh, possible civilization. So my largest initial query was, why did it take 4,000 years for us to become planters, if you like, on fixed fields? This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is James Scott, author of Against the Grain. A Deep History of the Earliest States, which turns out to be the story of scribes, taxes, and slavery. The idea being, uh, as you say, sort of looking backwards as if this were the pinnacle of advanced uh, living to become a planter and become sedentary and that that would put pressure in a, in its sense on becoming that way, that, that why would you want to hunt and forage as if that's the bad thing when you could be a farmer or sedentary, stop moving around? The reverse seems to be true, right? Correct. And uh, what I think people are unlikely to understand about the classical world of hunting and gathering, or even today, the hunters and gatherers and foragers who still exist in the world, 
we know that they don't spend uh, more than half of their time working at all. So the idea that these people are a day away from starvation and go into the forest hoping to uh, stumble on game is a kind of misunderstanding of their world in the sense that they are masters of uh, when certain uh, trees and plants fruit. They're masters of the migrations of birds and fish uh, and of mammals, and that they pretty largely intercept these migrations and are able to get much of their subsistence in a very short period of time. I can give you an interesting example from New England. If you look at low water at the uh, rivers that go out from Connecticut into the Long Island Sound and the Atlantic, uh, you'll find these uh, remnants of ancient structures, a couple of which have been rebuilt, um, which are funnels, essentially. Um, and the function of these funnels uh, for Native Americans was to channel the eels as they were going to see, usually at, toward the end of September, uh, into these narrow passages where they could be caught in baskets and uh, in a lar- on a large scale, salted and dried and smoked. And so Native Americans were able to get most of their annual protein supply uh, in a couple of weeks of intensive work by timing uh, and capturing these migrations. The same is true, of course, for bird migrations. Um, the same is true in the Middle East for the gazelle. The gazelle migrations were the big uh, migrations in the Middle East. And before agriculture and even during agriculture, there was an effort to create actually funnels that look like the ones at the bottom of rivers um, that were used to funnel the gazelles into a killing field where they could be killed uh, more easily. And in that case, they were able also to get most of their protein in a fairly short time. Yeah, you had mentioned this, um, uh, I think, in the previous book as well, the idea of uh, that particular uh, life that has a certain tempo to it and understands the way that those, uh, I guess, uh, migrations and seasons and is it, uh, you know, a person, a human being in tune with the way the natural world operates. Right. Um, I make the argument, which is not necessary to my, the book's argument in general, mm-hmm. make the argument that uh, if you look at the life of um, foragers and hunters and gatherers, they have to be the masters of many, many natural cycles of ripening, migrations, and so on. Um, and so they have to pay actually extremely close attention to the natural world, whereas early agriculturalists got most of their calories from a single carbohydrate grain. And so, if you like, the tempo of their life was structured by the genetic needs of wheat and barley, which were the major crops that they were growing. And that's a much more narrow relationship to the natural world mm-hmm. than hunters and gatherers have. I'm, I'm actually very fond of um, the argument made about specialization and mm-hmm. um, the narrowing of focus that uh, Alexis de Tocqueville mm-hmm. makes. De Tocqueville read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, uh, in which the example of the division of labor and therefore of human progress was the pin factory. Mm-hmm. And de Tocqueville read appreciatively the Wealth of Nations, but asked uh, out loud, as it were, um, what one could expect from a man who spent the last 20 years putting heads on pins. Um, and the point is that, that this is, uh, it may be an efficient form of production, but uh, it is, if you like, narrowing, and it's what uh, they call in the trade union world de-skilling, mm-hmm. the way the assembly line um, confines you to a single operation. Mm-hmm. It's time for a break. This is Old Stuff. From 1965 by New York Art Quartet. More with political scientist and author James Scott when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest today is James Scott, author of Against the Grain. In this segment, with monoculture comes monotheism and the drudgery of work. But other modes of sustaining human life existed at the same time as early civilization and involved living in tempo with the natural. Hunter-gatherers spent only about 50% of their time seeking sustenance. And who would choose to till and irrigate the land when you can just spread seeds after seasonal floods? Well, it may not be, as you say, central to the argument of this book, but it is, I think, central to the argument overall, the narrowing of, uh, I don't know what to say other than being, you know, the narrowing into a purpose and focus that isn't necessarily about um, the, mm, I would call it the lie we get for, you know, expanding, flourishing and progress, uh, but the the diminishment of capacity and possibility, which is a part of this story as well. The grain itself is a single, um, you know, a monocultural environment, uh, we talked last time too, I think, about sort of the, the monoculture of religion as well in, in many ways and how these kind of go hand in hand. That's a very important question of monotheism. Um, I don't do this in the book, but it is a logical extension, I think, of my argument to some extent that hunters and gatherers and foragers um, live in what we call an animist world. Christians would have called it a pagan world. And for them, everything is enchanted. That is to say, um, uh, everything is animated. Uh, a stream, uh, a hill, a valley, uh, a tree. They have their own kind of agency. Uh, monotheism is a very different uh, outlook on the world. And what is interesting to me is that, of course, uh, monotheism arises... Uh, exactly in the context that I'm writing about in these early civilizations, mm -hmm. um, Judaism, Christianity, uh, and Islam, uh, all of which uh, place man in command of nature to uh, have nature do his bidding. I think it's it always <laughs> phrased in the masculine uh, uh, gender. Yeah, that's a, 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 f a further intrigue, I suppose, um, again, as it's tied to the literacy or um, written tradition of, of these cultures as well, if we think of just the idea that uh, in the Hebrew Bible that God is an author uh, first and foremost, uh, in some sense, right? He um, right. hands the tablets to Moses before he actually asks Moses to write them down for him and become a scribe to him. So it is an interesting, uh, again, all these things in my head as I'm reading the book just keep sort of entangling in, t in themselves. So <laughs> I apologize if I keep going back and forth between your previous work and, and the interview with Puckner as well, just because they, they kind of all sort of dovetail into this story of civilization and who's writing the story. Um, part of uh, what you do uh, that uh, I think is interesting to me as well is try to understand that 4,000-year gap. What What's happening in that space where we do have some evidence or clear evidence that, that, you, that grain had been um, domesticated in a sense or that the, the actual growing of grain had, had served in that way? I guess you move into the domus at this point as well, as, or does that come later? I don't, I'm not quite sure of the timeline there. No, that that comes uh, somewhat later. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing, I think, for people to understand is that we associate uh, southern Mesopotamia uh, with an arid, sandy landscape in which you only get things to grow if you can irrigate them. The fact is that water levels are about 300 feet higher mm. uh, at 6,000 B.C. than they are today. And this meant that the... Uh, the Persian Gulf extended far up into the Mesopotamian uh, floodplain, up to the very doors of Ur and Uruk, these very earliest uh, states. And that meant that these were wetlands, and they were wetlands with a kind of pronounced dry season and a wet season, uh, in which when the area started to dry out, you had this in incredible pasturage for domesticated animals. You could grow plots, and when it was wet, you had all of the wetland uh, 
animals, fish, and birds. So it was a kind, of course, it is seen in many places as the original Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that respect, it was an area of wetland abundance. And I I owe this insight, elaborated by Jennifer Pornell, who wrote uh, a great dissertation on this, I think. Uh, She's able to recover what the landform looked like 6,000 years ago in a remarkable way. And so uh, what you had was wetland abundance where people would only practice ever one kind of agriculture planting, and that was what I call flood retreat agriculture, which is what's practiced along the Nile as well. That is to say, if you have a gentle flood, the flood brings silt, nutritious silt. It kills competing vegetation. When the flood recedes, then you have a perfectly plowed field or harrowed field that's nutritious and no competing vegetation. And you can just throw seeds, broadcast seeds, uh, and have a crop. And so that is the only form of agriculture Notice that it's not using a plow mm-hmm. uh, that's, or, or draft animals. That's the only form of agriculture that uh, lazy homo sapiens were interested in doing. <laughs> they had uh, an abundant landscape. And that, that why, by the way, is always when there was plenty of land, the only thing that interested human beings was how to get as much nutrition as easily as possible with as little work from the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so they were not interested in the yield per unit per acre. They were interested in the yield per unit work. Mm-hmm. How hard did they have to work? Drudgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so because land was cheap and easily available, uh, they avoided drudgery and uh, exploited all these little micro uh, ecosystems within this wetland area. And there was no need for them to uh, plant crops. So they avoided it as long as they can. And how they got pushed into it uh, is something I don't can't quite solve, because remember, I'm an outsider here. Um, and there's a big debate about whether it is a change in climate, um, where people were driven back to the sources of water and were not able to spread out, whether it was population growth. Um, so there's a worldwide argument about um, the causes of people to plant labor-intensive crops, uh, and uh, it hasn't been solved, and I can't solve it. I just present the uh, alternative explanations that are now available. Mm-hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is James Scott, author of Against the Grain, a deep history of the earliest states, which turns out to be the story of scribes, taxes, and slavery. Well, it it does strike one as, you know, if you go ahead and take the logic of not working very hard, Right or working as hard as you need to and getting the sustenance you need. Um, it strikes you again as not at all conducive, even in the worst conditions, to set up agriculture. You know, even if you're stuck with having no food, you, you the goal had always been to move somewhere else, right? To find, you know, to keep finding other places. And the 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 point we get to uh, is to imagine that. Um, things are, I guess, contracted, and this is your point, I think the point you try to make in terms of how states begin is that some contractual, perhaps natural thing happens. I think you mentioned an, uh, a small ice age at some point, and again, I don't know if I'm getting my timeline screwed up, but right. when the ability to you know, be that multitasking kind of foraging hunter, farmer stops being so simple. Uh, People are gathered in one place in larger numbers and then they begin to be utilized as tools in some sense. So we got in, that's where the argument is, you know, why would you ever want to be uh, enslaved by the state? Um, You know, how do you argue that that's the best way to be? How do we argue that working so hard for so little is is cast as a good. So let's I guess let's understand the domus at this point. 
Yes, I, I, I actually, I guess the domus leads us to the question of sedentary living, of staying in the mm-hmm. same place. Mm-hmm. Um, the I didn't realize this until I got around to thinking actively about the book and its argument. I didn't quite realize that the assumption behind the domestication of grains and civilization is that once we domesticated grains, it made it possible for us to stay in the same place Mm -hmm. year-round. And the argument implicitly is that that we would we had desperately wanted to do this, right? And finally, the domestication of grains made it possible for us to stay in the same place. Well, what's interesting to me is that historically, when colonizing powers have tried to forcibly resettle people who have mobile forms of subsistence, they found themselves with a war on their hands. Mm-hmm. Most Native Americans were, you know, confined to reservations only as a result of having lost a war, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's interesting, it's the interesting part about the wetland abundance of southern Mesopotamia was that it was possible to not move a great deal. They were not long treks because it was such a rich wetland mosaic that one could stay roughly in the same zone and collect all the things one needed for a quite diverse diet uh and a healthy subsistence. Um, And so the question is, what upsets that? And there, the question of population and climate uh, come in, and then you get the, what I call the domus, which is the sedentary agriculture with uh, a hearth, domesticated animals, crops, um, and families living in very close proximity uh, and at high densities. And the one thing that is true about sedentism is that it almost always results in a huge spurt in uh, in births, mm. um, in human fertility. Um, uh, hunters and gatherers have essentially one child every four years, um, and uh, agriculturalists have a child every two and a half years, roughly. Mm-hmm. Uh, over time... This makes a huge difference, um, even though sedentary populations are less healthy and actually mortality is quite high as well. But overall, over 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years, these agricultural settlements, because they're sedentary, uh, actually produce huge growths in population, despite bad health, um, that overwhelm the demographic uh, increase in hunters and gatherers. Here's one more from the New York Art Quartet off of the album Old Stuff. This is Sweet V, which I'll interpret as alluding to the shape of the first known writing on clay tablets, wedged lines we know as cuneiform. Though their double edge both conveys the glories of language found in the Epic of Gilgamesh and hides the violence and drudgery of thousands of years of forced labor, that make up the storied civilizations we praise as great human achievements. Back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is Storied States and the Domestication of Fire, Plants, Animals, and finally, Ourselves. And Taxes. You can't have a state without grain. You can have grain without a state. 
Grains like rice, wheat, and corn ripen above ground and at predictable times, making it very easy for the taxman to tend the tithe, or for an army to destroy it or steal it after harvest. You know, what's fascinating is that um, that this this single thing, right, this idea of, of this um, growth and in, in re- reproductive rate, um, you know, both overcomes bad health, as you say, overcomes the mortality rate um, and allows one to continue to go on being in the same place because you keep replacing yourself at, at a, a fast enough rate to continue laboring. Um, it's an interesting, uh, I guess, a difficult way to sometimes conceive of the, or to, to really think about these cultures uh, is, the again, the idea that you, you'd want to be sedentary, even though as you describe it, the fact of this growth of, of um, population, the fact of growing numbers of animals, uh, and as you say, the, the creatures that, that come along with them, the, un, the both invited uh, beings and the, and the uninvited creatures uh, all come into the domus as well, and, and thus we begin to see disease and et cetera, et cetera. So it's like the this thing that you that you imagine being a good again leads to multiple uh, negative consequences uh, on the population as a whole. So one of the one of the things I hope that the readers of my book will ponder uh, is our term of domestication. Mm. Um, that is, it seems to me that from one angle. My book is a story about a series of domestications. Um, the first domestication is the domestication of fire, mm-hmm. distinguished between wildfire and controlled fires at the domus or the hearth. Um, and then the domestication of plants. Uh, and each of the uh, domestication means control over reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, so we control the reproduction of fire, we control the reproduction of plants and shape them to our needs. We control the reproduction of animals uh, in the course of their domestication. Um, And one could argue that uh, we create the patriarchal family, uh, the state does, in order to control the reproduction of women uh, and to realize control of a growing population. Mm-hmm. And so one can see this um, uh, as a series, and you can, one could see that the function of the state is to domesticate homo sapiens as well. Right. Yeah. So that, I don't draw that out in great detail, but yes. I invite my readers to see <laughs> this progression as a series of domestications. Well, it's uh, it's enough because you move into the enslaved population as well, and you quote Aristotle also as the the human, the lesser species of human, I suppose, as a particular tool. So it's it isn't hard to, of course, go there that the, the domestication of humanity uh, is kind of the end uh, of state formation itself, I suppose. The uh, the other person who actually draws this. Um relationship in a very direct way is V. Gordon Child, who wrote a book a long time ago called Man Makes Himself. Mm. It was probably the uh, the oasis theory of uh, early civilization. Anyway, his argument, based on some interesting evidence, is that the domestication of animals led directly to uh, the institutions of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, that as long as you're domesticating four-footed animals, uh, you might as well domesticate two-footed animals as well Mm -hmm. and make them do your bidding and control their reproduction as well. Or if you can't, you can at least capture them from the wild and assemble them to do your bidding. Mm -hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is James Scott, author of Against the Grain, a deep history of the earliest states which turns out to be the story of scribes, taxes, and slavery. Well, it makes sense. Once you once you craft it that way or just see the the ability to do so and in this country itself if we just if we just stick to the the culture of slavery that this country has as well and you have our founding father like Thomas Jefferson talking about breeding patterns of his own 
uh, enslaved right. population at the time, you see that very, very readily. That that that's just an end point that makes sense in terms of controlling other beings to serve other beings. I guess. <laughs> right? as, as as someone who spent twenty years raising uh, sheep and judging my success not just by the wool that I sheared from them, but mm-hmm. from my lamb crop. Mm-hmm. So people who held slaves. Mm-hmm judge their success by the reproductive rate of the slaves themselves. Mm, mm-hmm. And that's why, that's why the pattern of slavery in early states uh, favors the, um, uh, the capture of women and children, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. partly because they're the reproductive part of the population. And the men, let's say, if we're talking about ancient Athens, the men are by and large sent to... Uh, the silver mines and quarries uh, in more or less chain gang slavery, whereas the women and children are incorporated into Greek society. Mm. Well, it's a good uh, trip through those cultures as well, the book, uh, after after you sort of say, well, uh, grain isn't necessarily the reason for state formation, but without grain, there is no state. This is a, pri- a primary point of the book, right? That, that you could have grain without states, but that a state can't be without some kind of uh, right. t- taxable... Uh, grain, for the most part, tax being the uh, a key issue here, right? Right. Um, so yes, I I make an argument which I've actually made elsewhere mm-hmm. about the importance of a of a grain. Um, the word grain is actually meant really quite specifically um, in terms of cereal grains that grow above the ground mm-hmm. um, that can be evaluated, that can be controlled. You could, you know, if. If you're growing a grain that grows above ground, it all gets ripe at the same time. Mm-hmm. Tax man can come and um, take it, or, or better yet, wait till you put it in the granary and then confiscate the granary. Um, or if they dislike you, they can burn the crops in the field, and and you're uh, you've destroyed the, these people's subsistence. Mm-hmm. If, on the other hand, you're growing cassava or potatoes uh, or root crop then this does not work as a tax good. And so, you, as you said, you can have grain without a state, but you can't have a state without grain, as near as I can tell. It could be millet, it could be maize, it could be rice. And in the Middle East, it's wheat and barley, essentially. Um, and these are... You could also... <clears throat> you can have slavery uh, without a state as well. Uh, but you have very few states without slavery. Hmm. This is the the point throughout is that the population is grown as well to a particular purpose. Exactly. Um, the the problem is, and this is something we know from contemporary demography, that by and large, um, one of the problems of cities because they are such epidemiologically dangerous places is uh, that they are prone to. Um, uh, this concentration of population is prone to produce uh, devastating uh, epidemics. And that means that these early states in particular um, had to have um, ways of growing their population um, in addition to the rate of birth uh, within their own population. And that meant by slavery and capture, as that was the uh, essentially the alternative. In I think until the 19th century, essentially, most Western cities only grew by drawing in more people from the countryside because they were fairly lethal in terms of epidemics like cholera uh, and so on. So my guess is, and the evidence is not as rich as I'd like it to be, my evidence is that the disappearance of many of these early states, which blink on and off with great um, frequency, is that a good many of them were destroyed by epidemics, um, and they leave very little traces. Unless they leave traces in the bones, mm-hmm. um, it's hard to kind of know what destroyed a city. But cities are disappearing all the time, almost overnight. And if the, we don't have evidence that the cities are burned, then the question is, why did they disappear? Were they abandoned because of an epidemic? Did most of the population die? Uh, did the crops fail? Or did they have a, 
a disease of their domesticated animals, because the crowding and epidemics are not only true for Homo sapiens, it's true for their domesticated animals and for the concentration of crops of the nearly genetically the same kind close mm-hmm. to one another. Yeah, it's a major point, uh, domestication becoming crowding as much as anything else. Exactly. And that crowding allowed for all sorts of new diseases, diseases that had not been seen before. That was a surprise for me that, that what we think of as all the infectious diseases, measles, mumps, and chickenpox would be the most uh, uh, salient for Americans, I think, uh, that these were not diseases that were rare before the early cities, but they simply did not exist. They are the diseases created by the crowding together of domesticated animals and human beings in the same space. So almost all of our infectious diseases are things that move between pigs, sheep, goats, horses, uh, dogs, and so on, and homo sapiens. Yeah, a function, again, another result of this great idea of being in a state. It's time for our final break. This is Panonica, again by New York Art Quartet. It's been called an artful deconstruction of the Thelonious Monk song, jazz seeking even greater freedom of expression. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. For our final segment of Storied States, Jim Scott discusses the imbalance in our historical record due to the advent of writing. Until recently, we assumed that once civilization existed, that was the only game in town. But that's probably because early villages left behind a written and archaeological record, civilization's waste, so to speak, while the barbarians, ever mobile, were living off the land unrecorded and sustainably as we like to say today. Well, so generally, I, I again, because of my own, I guess, bringing my own knowledge to the reading of this, it, uh, as I said, it sticks me with the idea of the literate past, I suppose, or the literature of the past. And as you and I talk about this in 2018, uh, again, it's try. It's one of those things in, in which you don't understand how uh, people in this way understood their past, right? Uh, how uh, you keep saying throughout, uh, you know, these were experiments, and once a state blinks in and out of existence, where does its history go? Where does its uh, understanding of the experiment go? How does it come about again? You know, all these things are, are, are continually being asked. How do we form this again? And who, who is wanting to form it? <laughs> you know, who, again, if we think we don't want to live in this drudgery, someone does want us to live in this drudgery. So... Um... My response to your question could go in many directions. The, um, I guess the first thing that is important is that a people can keep its 
history uh, intact and elaborated and develop it without writing at all. Mm -hmm. That is to say, the bardic tradition of uh, gathering over the campfire and telling the history of our people and its wanderings and its heroes and its leaders and uh, spirits that animate us and so on, uh, this is, if you like, a human universal, so that uh, all every people carries a kind of culture and a sense of its history. Um, and the interesting thing is, I think, the difference between um, it being carried as an oral tradition uh, by word of mouth in which people learn, actually people can learn long passages almost by rote, uh, by imitation, without writing, mm -hmm. and to keep this traditional, tradition alive. The interesting thing for me is the what we know about cuneiform is that it, for 500 years, was nothing more than a notational system for the collection of taxes and commercial agreements um, between merchants and uh, their clients, and only after 500 years did it get to be, a, if you like, a literary writing that had pray, hymns of praise for um, for kings, mm -hmm. had uh, genealogical lists that had mm -hmm. uh, uh, religious. Uh, incantations to gods and so on. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because it struck me as an interesting confluence. Again, if you imagine 500 years of accounting for the most part or keeping track of, uh, as you say, uh, trade uh, agreements or something like that, and then there being a literature form that seeks to sing praises. Is there, is that period of, of time, is there a particular thing that, it, that maps to in terms of a collapse, and, and I, we can talk about collapse also, but in terms of needing to sing the praises of the state, needing to sing the praises of the king at the time versus just needing to keep track of, of money or uh, lambs or grain or whatnot? The, the earlier forms of, let's say, take hieroglyphics in Egypt, mm -hmm. they are like Chinese characters, kinds of pictograms, um, and that they do not aim at replicating uh, human speech. Mm -hmm. um, that is, they can't be kind of read in the way that, let's say, a Latin-derived language that uh, is meant to record spoken text. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that it's only much later that cuneiform develops the forms that allow it to say not just, you know, two dozen sheep, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and a date and the names of the parties who are exchanging them, uh, it's much later that cuneiform begins to take on the forms that mimic human speech mm. so that you can get something like the Epic of Gilgamesh in the forms in which it has survived for us. Now, the Epic of Gilgamesh obviously did not begin as a written text. Mm -hmm. It was the writing down of what had been an oral text, and we, of course, have only one or two or three versions of this as it was later written down. But like the Odyssey and the Iliad, it was essentially a text recited by bards. Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing um, to me about uh, Gilgamesh, again, I suppose, is the the um, how it maps really really with the story you're, you're laying out here, right? The idea of the city walls, uh, the need for timber, uh, all these things are kind of, you know, what, what the state, the city requires and how it begins to denude forests and, and how bad this is for, for its environment and for the population itself. Um, it's a pretty fascinating book. Uh, layered onto your book, actually. So um, I guess let's talk a little bit about walls. They're necessary for states also. Right. And, and of course, Gilgamesh is uh, 
whatever the sort of, and, and they are considerable, the great beauties of the Epic of Gilgamesh. I mean, it's probably one of the great stories of of love and friendship mm-hmm. uh, that uh, has ever been written, I think. It's extremely moving. Um, but it is, at another level, it's the account of the founder of a city and the ultimate um, uh, signal of that in the Epic of Gilgamesh is both the taking of the great uh, cedars of Lebanon and floating them down, they will then become the gates of um, of the city, uh, and of course building a wall around that city. and And Gilgamesh is seen to have built the be responsible for the city wall. Whether that's historically correct, <laughs> right? Some great dispute. But you you are right that this is a state foundation story, in which, in a sense, the luster and fame of Gilgamesh is as the founder of an early kingdom. Hmm. The, the One of the things that always struck me is, is, again, trying to read Gilgamesh through trying to understand what you're saying as well, is that uh, the citizens the, of, of Uruk, I suppose, are singing uh, for help from the gods because Gilgamesh is has gotten out of hand. Uh, he, as the part divine leader in the story, he's, he, of course, has taken all liberties with all females in the story. And, and a, a big part of, of the, the, the goal of his partner, Enkidu, being, coming into existence is to tame Gilgamesh himself. It's it's just kind of a fascinating it's a fascinating story, and I, I you know it makes me wonder too about that that aspect of the ruling class or the ruler itself being called into account by its citizens, sort of right. Yeah. So, well, the the character of Enkidu is a um, is an interesting character because it's also the story of a barbarian mm-hmm. civilized, right, and. And this right. requires, if I remember it correctly, this requires sex. Uh, right, right. The temple priestess, like Shamat, I think is her name, uh, or I, sent to to have sex with Enkidu, yeah. An agent of civilization. <laughs> right, right. The temple priestess, in a sense, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, so the, 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 the barbarian, the, the hairy one, basically, I think is, is how he's termed, perhaps, uh, is known to the creatures, you know, a friend of the animals. Uh, it's almost a Disney scene as he, as he drinks at the, at the water's edge until he is civilized by sex, and then he, I assume, smells funny. Um, because <laughs> because the cre- all the creatures stay away from him at that point. I think that it's very it would be very difficult to find any early civilization that didn't want to draw a very firm red line mm-hmm. between its mode of existence and the barbarians right. outside right. the state. Right. Um, and uh, whether they're hairy, whether they smell <laughs> right. they're lazy, whether they don't wear sandals, uh, uh, whether um, they eat raw meat, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. What's striking is this effort, and I guess one of my the points of my book is that people are moving all the time uh, in and out of these cities, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To pastoral nomadism, hunting and gathering, things are breaking up. And what's interesting to me is the degree to which these civilizational narratives, as confected by these early states, is an effort to draw an ever sharper line between those of us who stay in the same place and who are subjects of the king mm-hmm. and those who are taking the flocks uh, um, far away. Uh, and who you might want to trade with, but who can't be trusted to be uh, civilized, intelligent, uh, and uh, reliable. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it is uh, it is a major part of the book, and it goes into the the bar 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 barbarians, right? <laughs> the the idea of the foreign speaker, I suppose, is kind of where where that that speculated that that term comes from the um, the sound of speech to a Greek that isn't Greek. Um, and that is an interesting part because as you tell the story, again, it seems like the size of states, even at their largest, is minimal 
compared to the population around it and how there is a, as you ca- as I think you call it, a shadow civilization of sorts uh, that that comes up with the state and barbarians, in a sense, succeed as the state succeeds. Right. I think that's, uh, that's true in a sense. When you get something the size of, let's say, the Roman Empire or the Han um, dynasty in China, um, or the Zhou dynasty in China, for that matter, um, you're likely to get, if you like, non-state formations on the edges of these little empires uh, that are trying to control the trade routes and so on uh, in and out of them. And these are what uh, Thomas Barfield calls uh, shadow empires. Mm -hmm. They are, in that sense, Parasitic. I should I should mention, by the way, I don't think it made it into the book, but the the contemporary woman's name Barbara hmm. um, uh, is in Roman times. The name Barbara was the name one gave to a wife who had slave origins, hmm. and so I mean it's lost its stigma, and people can walk around without any shame <laughs> with the name Barbara today. I'm not sure now. <laughs> it was a um, it was a mark of slave origin uh, in uh, uh, in Roman times. Hmm. That's fascinating. That uh, so many fascinating things in the book. The uh, the idea again for me, it's the it's what's striking to me is again size and relation to population. Uh, the, the way that states have outsized importance in our written imagination, I suppose, written in our libraries. The fact that libraries are state, you know, state form facilities. Also, um, these are uh, alongside a larger sort of aspect of living. That, that continues on the edges, as you say, at the periphery, uh, life going on and making use of these states that have sort of become almost oases for barbarians. They're, a, you're, they're able to uh, pillage um, the state centers right. and, and have a great life. So, yes, yeah, so it really did strike me that if one thinks of the traces of civilizations in all our great museums, it you cannot but be impressed with the degree to which it made a huge difference whether you built from uh, materials that um, were lasting, like granite and stone and so on, and if you controlled metallurgy so that you created things of gold and bronze and so on that survived the ravages of time, uh, you got much more space uh, in the museums right. than if, let's say, in Southeast Asia you had early kingdoms that built from things like uh, bamboo and rattan uh, wood, essentially, um, and that were at estuaries of rivers, and they were destroyed by time. And, and in fact, one of the reasons why I'm dealing with Mesopotamia and why cuneiform is important is that it was written on clay tablets that survived, right. or at least many of them survived, whereas the Egyptians wrote on papyrus um, a reed which uh, was subject to the ravages of time and uh, uh, and spoilage and so on. Mm-hmm. So if, um, if my way of putting it is that if you build uh, with uh, imperishable materials in one place uh, and stack it all up so that the archaeologists can come and dig it. Um, then you get a lot of pages in the history books, <laughs> and you get a lot of space in the museums. Right. But if you are on the periphery, even if there are more of you, and even if you're quite sophisticated, uh, and you spread your biodegradable trash widely in the landscape, you just disappear mm-hmm. from the historical record as if you were not there. Now, I should give credit to archaeologists who've become better and better and better over the last couple of decades at uh, understanding sites of hunters and gatherers Mm. uh, by sifting through all their material Mm -hmm. and so on. So uh, that's being corrected by uh, contemporary archaeology, but um, not fast enough for Mm -hmm. uh, for, for my mind. We are finding traces, finally, then. Right. Yeah. Well... 
Go ahead. You know, they're able, um, the striking example of this is called coprolites, mm. uh, which are essentially the remains of feces in old outhouses, if you like. Mm. Uh, and we can reconstruct the diet of people oh, wow. on the basis of uh, their, I don't know, turds. <laughs> Right? Uh, reserved curds and yes, yes. Out all the materials we can reconstruct uh, uh, changes in diet over time. Mm. Well, why not? The the um, you you make this point too in the book the, that you were somewhat making there that you know part of how this story continues to be told is that it is uh, a manufacturer of kind of how we proceed as. Um, making ourselves important in some sense, right? So the scribe becomes important. The scribe actually is at the seat of power. And generally, generally, as we continue to uh, write books and discover seats of certain kinds of power, that is an industry in itself that pr- you know, makes primary these civilizations. And um, as you say, does not necessarily take account of what is disappeared. Part of the issue, which is interesting still, is that I continue to imagine the the sort of, because this is who I am, Jim, I'm going to say it this way, right? It's the, the idea of the, the wrongness of much of this, right? The idea, like if we just look at our, our, our trash, right? If we look at civilization's waste, which is read through history, Right versus the way of living that produces no waste or trace in a way that has been read, you know, one has served its ecology or environment or whatever we want to call it these days, and one has served to, you know, pretty much destroy and decimate. So they go hand in hand, and this is part of the question of, of the value of civilization as it I guess, you know, on one hand is people and their ways of life are erased and one way is considered best because it remains while it's clearly been harming the world. Right. Uh, you, you're, what The implication of what you're saying is that if we're going to judge a society by the volume of trash that it leaves behind, yeah. then we are obviously at the apex of civilization. That's right. This is the top, baby. <laughs> on, the other, on the other hand, I guess what, what I want to emphasize as well is that when we get to writing, mm-hmm. the earliest writing uh, is almost invariably produced by, as you call it, the scribes of the state mm-hmm. and the high priests and so on. So these are almost always, if you like, propaganda from the top elites. Right. Um, produced, if you like, under their patronage for their purposes, mm-hmm. the praise of the state, of the dynasty, of the kings, and so on. And the idea that we should somehow treat these texts mm-hmm. as even more valuable historical sources than oral texts, mm-hmm. um, which are problematic in of themselves, of course, but the idea that these early writing uh, examples are um, give us the short, direct path to the truth about these states, mistakes utterly their function in the early societies in which they were produced. Mm. Well, that's a beautiful way to say it. That's our show. We'll close with Karen's Blues, another off of Old Stuff by New York Art Quartet. I hope you'll forgive me as I transmute this into Urshanabi's blues. The homophonic Karen is the ferryman on the River Styx, or River of the Dead, in Greek mythology, whose more ancient counterpart is Urshanabi, the ferryman of the Huber, River of the Dead in Mesopotamian mythology, and who becomes Gilgamesh's companion after Enkidu dies. By the way, for an extended conversation with Jim Scott, including more on Gilgamesh, Enkidu, and the civilized versus the barbarians. Check out the podcast version of this episode at wfhb.org slash news slash interchange. Our thanks to James Scott for unsettling the official narrative once again. His new book is Against the Grain and is published by Yale University Press. 
Next time on Interchange, The Political Prisoner. In his new book, Dance in Chains, Padraig Kenny asks, is there any figure in the contemporary world who inspires greater respect than the political prisoner? Kenny reveals the ways prisoners transform and make use of their incarceration in countering states' efforts to control them. The Political Prisoner, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and Bryce Martin is studio engineer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.